millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. The prisoner is probably the youngest person actively concerned in the investigation of this case. You may build round a case of this kind a mountain of motive. You may surround it with suspicion. But if you do not prove the person whose death you are investigating was murdered, your mountain of motive and all your suspicion are without value. James Dale Castles Sussex Assizes, March 1930. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 14 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Margate on the southeast coast of England was a popular tourist destination in the 1920s. People came in droves to experience the sandy beaches, the theme park and modern pier. Being a hotelier was big business, even though it was midweek during that late October. The Hotel Metropole on Margate seafront was bustling with guests. However, most of the visitors at that time of year stayed for business, not pleasure, like travelling salesmen. 
The hectic Wednesday had almost drawn to a close at 11.40pm on October 23, 1929. The quiet was broken when guests were disturbed by a scantily clad man running down the stairs from the first floor, calling for the boots, a term for porters. Dressed in just a vest, 30-year-old Sidney Harry Fox shouted for help and screamed at those people gathered in the lobby that there was a fire upstairs. Samuel Hopkins, a travelling salesman who was staying at the hotel, later recalled that the man who was shouting looked petrified, quote, as if he had almost lost his head. Hopkins followed Fox up the stairs to room 67, which was filled with smoke. Fox rushed back out to the corridor and pointed to the next room, 66, and said, My mother is in there. Open it. Hopkins opened the door, but was immediately knocked back by the thick smoke emanating from the room. The air was so dense and dark that he could not see, even when he went outside and tried to enter for a second time. Sensing the panic around him, Hopkins wasted no time, tying his handkerchief around his mouth and crawling into the blackened room. The only light seen through the smoke was a glowing red globe, a lamp illuminating the corner of the room. Feeling around in front of him, Hopkins' hands came into contact with someone's leg. A semi-naked female was lying on the left side of a bed, close to the door. Her other leg was hanging off the opposite side of the bed near the source of the fire. Hopkins put one arm beneath the woman's legs and another behind her neck, dragging her from the bed to the carpeted floor. As he pulled her from the burning room into the crowded corridor, Hopkins began to feel the effects of the smoke. Just as he had carried the woman to the landing, he heard Fox say, My mummy! My mummy! Overcome by the fumes, Hopkins collapsed. It would take him a full three weeks to recover. As two men ran into the room to try and extinguish the smouldering fire, Attempts were made by guests in the corridor to resuscitate the woman who would later be identified as 63-year-old Rosaline Fox. Reginald Leonard Reed pulled a smoking armchair from room 66 that seemed to have been sitting directly above the source of the fire. Reed returned to the room to stamp on an incandescent patch of carpet and poured water on the floor while another guest braved the fumes to turn off the gas stove, positioned close to the charred carpet. Local officers PC Bray and PS Fleet arrived within minutes and took over resuscitation attempts as they fought in vain to save the dying woman. By the time the fire brigade arrived in two vehicles, the fire had been extinguished and the smoke was dissipating through the open window in room 66. Local GPs Dr. Austin and Dr. Nichols were urgently summoned to the hotel 
but sadly nothing could be done. Dr. Rostin pronounced Rosaline Fox dead shortly before midnight. The doctor believed she had succumbed to shock and suffocation as a result of the fire. Sidney Fox had been taken to another room, awaiting word on his mother's condition, unaware of what had happened. Dr. Robert Nicholl was sent to break the news to the woman's distraught son, but chose to do it as gently as possible, without telling him directly that his mother was dead. The doctor mentioned that the coroner had been informed and an inquest would be held, so it was in Fox's best interest to retain a solicitor. When Sidney Fox realised what that meant, he almost collapsed. Dr. Nicholl later recalled, As I went on, he became more agitated and finally extremely agitated, so much so that I was shocked. I was surprised to see a man so agitated. His distress increased enormously as I spoke to him. Sidney Fox asked if he could see his mother again, and he was taken to the downstairs room where her body had been carried. Fox wept beside her for a few moments before leaving, and the doctor felt it was in Sidney Fox's best interest to be sedated. Dr. Nicholl administered a dose of morphine through a hypodermic needle. Then Fox was led to a different bedroom, one that had adjoined his mother's. As he became more composed, Fox spoke of the coincidences between his mother's death and the recent death of a friend. 90-year-old Lady Paget, who had once been Queen Victoria's lady-in-waiting, had fallen asleep next to the fire while reading a newspaper. The paper had somehow come into contact with the flames and ignited the elderly woman's clothing. With the doctor's permission, Inspector Palmer from the local police force spoke to Sidney Fox as he lay in bed in the early hours of the morning. When asked to give an account of the events preceding the fire for the inquest, Fox said that his mother had gone to bed at 9.45pm and he had given her the evening paper. Fox told the inspector, I lit the gas fire and asked if I should wait to turn out the light. She said, no, that will be all right. She was not undressed. My room is next to hers. Number 67. It opens into her room, which is never locked. I came downstairs and retired about 10.45 and went to sleep. I was aroused about 11.30 by what I thought was a window rattling. I got up and noticed the smell of fire and closed my window and went to her room to see if it came from there. I found the room full of smoke. I saw a light near where the gas stove would be. I entered the room but was beaten back by smoke. I went downstairs for a porter and a number of people entered the room. I saw a man drag her out unconscious. I could not say if she was breathing. She frequently read the paper in her bedroom. I cannot say if she undressed in front of the fire. 
neither of us smoked. She was a good sleeper. Dr. Nickel agreed with Dr. Rostin that the woman's condition indicated that she had either died from suffocation from the fire or shock. They saw no signs of physical violence or foul play. No post-mortem examination was conducted as a result of their opinions. The police and the fire brigade carried out an inspection of the room, reporting their findings at an inquest held the following afternoon in the town hall, overseen by Borough Coroner Wilson Price. There was an open book found on the floor, a few feet from the gas fire, and it was believed that the source of the smoke had been a patch of carpet beneath the large armchair, positioned one and a half feet from a fender that was in front of the gas stove. A bundle of burned clothing was discovered on the armchair, which was severely charred on the side that had been closest to the fire. One leg had been damaged. A patch of carpet between the fender and the fire was unburned, as if something had formed a bridge between them. One officer suggested that a piece of newspaper might have been ignited by the gas fire, and the flames travelled beneath the chair where they caused the carpet to smoulder. The fire destroyed the bottom of the chair, causing the stuffing to fall down onto the glowing embers below. Chief Officer Hammond from the fire brigade formed the opinion that Mrs Fox had undressed in front of the fire, and some portion of her clothing had come into contact with the flames before it was dropped on the ground where it smouldered. Hammond reported that it was purely incandescent fire that burned without a flame, destroying the patch of carpet and underlay. Furthermore, a burned piece of underwear was discovered on the floor close to the underside of the chair, and stockings had been draped across the side of the armchair, subsequently being charred by the heat. Mrs Fox's dress was found hanging behind the door, her shoes sat beneath the bed, and her worn-out dentures had been placed in a basin. There was no trace of any luggage, jewellery or other belongings in the room, apart from a badly burned handbag sitting on the armchair. Sidney Fox had asked if the £24 he had given to his mother from a recently cashed cheque was still in the bag, but nothing was found other than a postcard. Dr. Rostin told the coroner that Mrs. Fox's death was a result of smoke inhalation, which caused her to suffocate. There were no signs of any burn injuries, apart from a tinge of redness on her lips that could be attributed to carbon monoxide poisoning. There was nothing in the woman's appearance that indicated she had died from anything other than smoke inhalation. The coroner instructed the jury to return a verdict of death by misadventure. It was seen simply as a tragic accident. Coroner William Price commended the guests at the hotel, who had done everything they could in the circumstances to try and rescue Mrs. Fox and extinguish the fire. The coroner also expressed his sympathy to Sidney Fox, who through his solicitor, Mr. Wilson, thanked those who had done 
strenuous, laborious and dangerous work in an attempt to save his mother's life. With the inquest over, Rosaline Fox was buried the following week after a lavish funeral in the Norfolk village where she was raised. Newspapers reported a tragic end to the week-long stay for the mother and son, who had recently returned from visiting the graves of Mrs. Fox's other children in France. Rosaline Fox was the daughter of a farm labourer born in Great Friendship. The little Norfolk village between Norwich and Kings Lynn had a small population, but few locals remembered much about Rosaline. A childhood accident left her with a distinctive scar on the right side of her nose, and she was described as being quiet and flighty. Shortly after she turned 20, Rosaline married William Fox, a signalman for the Great Eastern Railway but the relationship was not to last. Little is known about what happened to William, but it's believed that he left his wife and their sons William and Reginald soon after their eldest child turned six. Rosaline went on to have two more sons, Cecil and Sidney, whose fathers were not listed on their birth certificates. By all accounts, Mrs. Fox was adored by her youngest son, who had told the police that she was his only living relative after his brothers had been killed in the war. It seemed admirable that a family from such a disadvantaged background would rise to such a social ranking, allowing them to stay in upmarket hotels for days at a time. But to others... The situation rang alarm bells. Within days of Mrs. Fox's funeral, the police had received information from a claims investigator who found it suspicious that Rosaline Fox's life had been insured up until midnight on the day of her death. The benefactor, her youngest son, Sidney. Sidney Fox had a history of duplicity, and when it was discovered that he had obtained credit by fraudulent means, to the extent of just under £30, which is equal to around £1,300 in today's money, he was arrested in Norwich and charged as an undisclosed bankrupt who had outstanding liabilities totalling £267. Fox owed the Hotel Metropole in Margate £12, 4 shillings and 8 pence. He also owed £15, 5 shillings to the Royal Pavilion Hotel in Folkestone. What's more, he had cashed a fake cheque for £2 in a chemist, but he had a string of similar convictions that stemmed from his childhood. Just before he turned 13, Sidney Fox was caught pocketing the money he had collected for a charitable organisation. For the theft, he was thrashed with a birch rod, a punishment known as birching. The practice of flogging a young male offender with a stick or other similar tool was commonly ordered by the court as a punishment. The caning for the crime was carried out by an East Durham officer. 
Corporal punishment did little to dissuade young Sidney Fox from his deceptive ways of obtaining money. Even when he was offered a position as a page boy for an affluent family in the West End. Mrs. Fox and her youngest son had moved to Thornton Heath near Croydon. While the single mother worked in a kitchen, Sidney became acquainted with the baronet Sir John Leslie and his family at their London townhouse. Associating with distinguished members of high society such as the noble Sir John and his wife, Winston Churchill's maternal aunt, evoked a taste in the impressionable Sidney Fox for the finer things in life. Unsatisfied with working his way to the top so he could afford the life he wanted for himself and his mother, Fox stole from Sir Leslie, and he was fired from his position. According to Lethal Witness, a book by Andrew Rose, Sir Leslie's grandson Shane, it was suspected that by the time of his dismissal in 1916, the teenage Sidney Fox was receiving money from, quote, homo-amorous men. Fox was then able to gain employment at Cox's Bank in Charing Cross, London, and to fund his exploits, he began to forge cheques in customers' names. Instead of being prosecuted for these crimes... Fox was ordered to enlist in the armed forces at a time when soldiers were needed during the First World War. Sidney Fox seemed to elicit sympathy from older men in the army, and he was enrolled as a cadet in the Royal Flying Corps, the army unit that preceded the RAF. Fox was then arrested at a West End club wearing a lieutenant's uniform by an officer who said that Fox had obtained, quote, such money as he could make out of sexual perversion. In the early 1900s, being gay was a criminal offence punishable by a sentence of between 10 years to life in prison with hard labour. Even decades later, when Alan Turing, a gifted mathematician who broke the Enigma Code during World War II, was convicted of gross indecency, he was chemically castrated. Sidney Fox was believed to have been in intimate relationships with high-ranking servicemen and members of high society. His connection to one would later be used to cast suspicion upon him for a crime much greater than fraud. After serving three months in Hove Prison for forging checks, Fox was sent back to the army before being discharged from service after being diagnosed with epilepsy. Between 1917 and 1928, Fox was in and out of prison four times, but he had more than greed as a motivation. His mother was suffering from partial paralysis, which limited control over her muscles and led to difficulty walking. Fox rarely left his mother's side apart from his spells in prison. However, upon his release, he would always return to her. It suited the mother and son to obtain credit by deceiving people, 
They would stay at hotels for a day or two without having to pay because they gave the impression they were wealthy. As a security deposit, Sidney Fox would hand the manager a sealed envelope that he said contained valuable documents. He assured them he would wire the amount owed after checking out. In February 1928, Unsurprisingly, Fox was sentenced to 12 months in prison for stealing, again from another employer. His mother was admitted into St. Mary's Infirmary as a sick and destitute person. She remained there until her youngest son's release in March 1929. Despite their joint income of just 18 shillings a week from Mrs. Fox's pension and Sidney Fox's disability pension of eight shillings, the mother and son were able to stay in hotels across the country that cost more per night than they received in a week. Part of their scheme involved the purchase of accident and travel insurance. They often journeyed with nothing more than the clothes on their backs, but they would claim for lost luggage. Mrs Fox had been insured for a total of 167 days between April and October 1929. Most of the policies were for a few days at a time, extended every so often as the pair moved around. Sidney and his mother had travelled to Douassant Military Cemetery in France to pay their respects to two of Rosaline's other sons. The second youngest had died during the war, and the second eldest had been killed in a blast in 1916. When they returned, the mother and son stayed in different hotels throughout the southeast, across Colchester, Folkestone, Canterbury, and finally Margate. A seaside town on Kent's northern coast was relatively quiet in October 1929. The majority of the guests at the hotel in October appeared to be salesmen. When the well-dressed Sidney Fox and his elderly mother checked in on October 16th, they had no problem securing two rooms for what was supposed to be a one-night stay. They were given rooms 68 and 70 on the first floor. The following day, Fox went to the reception desk and asked to extend their stay. He handed the clerk a sealed envelope and asked them to keep it in the safe as it contained valuable documents. On October 18th, Fox spoke to the hotel manager Joseph Harding and asked him for a recommendation for a good insurance broker's. He mentioned a £25 cheque that he had to cash. Mr Harding offered to cash it for him, but Fox said he intended on going to London anyway, and would do it at a Lloyd's bank. Sidney Fox spoke about a new house his mother had just purchased in Lyndhurst, and said that their luggage had been sent there but they were awaiting refurbishments to be completed before they moved in. This explained why the guests only had one outfit and why Fox was using petrol to clean his suit jacket. Joseph Harding later recalled, Each time I spoke to Mr Fox, he said that he was leaving the following morning. 
On October 20th, Fox came down to the reception and said that his mother had contracted a chill and had just fainted. The manager gave him some sal volatile, smelling salts often used to bring someone around who had just fainted. Joseph Harding phoned the local doctor, Dr. Austin, and asked him to attend. The hotel staff had noticed that Mrs. Fox seemed to be unwell. Her hands and feet were discoloured and cold. She had a fixed gaze and a shuffling walk, which meant she often needed an arm to hold as she moved from the dining hall back to her room. The receptionist suggested that Fox and his mother move into some adjoining rooms, 66 and 67. Room 66 had a gas stove which the other rooms did not. The chambermaid brought hot water bottles up to Mrs. Fox, who was in bed complaining of abdominal pain. The bill for their stay was £5, 6 shillings, 11 pence at this stage, but Fox said that his mother was too unwell to travel, so they moved what little belongings they had into rooms 66 and 67. Dr. Rostin arrived to examine Mrs. Fox in her room. Sidney Fox noticed that the doctor seemed to be intoxicated and was dismissive of Mrs. Fox's complaints. The doctor put his thumbs on the side of his head and wiggled his fingers as he said, You're all right, old lady. Boogie, boogie. The police report notes that Dr. Rostin was too drunk to give a statement when he was first interviewed and Fox was dissatisfied with the care his mother had received. The doctor left a prescription for a tonic which was collected from Wool's chemist. The eight-ounce bottle contained 16 doses of chloroform water. Speaking with hotel staff, Fox said the chemist had to break down the prescription and told him occasionally doctors prescribed excess amounts. Fox had handed the pharmacist a promissory note for £2, written on headed paper from the Hotel Metropole that was signed Rosaline Fox, but the chemist could not accept it because it only had a one-pence stamp on it. Mrs Fox's condition improved, and before heading to London the following morning, Fox went back to the chemist and spoke with an assistant. He told her that the pharmacist had said it was fine to cash the £2 cheque if he fixed another penny stamp to it and had it endorsed, which Fox assured her he had done. The assistant took the four shillings owed for the prescription from the amount and gave him the rest. Fox had left a six shilling sixpence tip with the chambermaid, Louise Bickman, and asked her to look after his mother while he went to London. Sidney Fox called the hotel later that day to check in on his mother too. On October 22nd, Fox went to Pickford Limited in High Hoburn and completed a form for an insurance policy for his mother from the Ocean Accident Guarantee Corporation, covering personal accident insurance for tourists and travellers. Her address was listed as the Hotel Metropole in Margate. 
Mrs Fox had at least 12 one-day policies from Pickford Limited from April 1929, up until that point in October. The one-day policies cost two shillings and covered accidents involving the loss of limb or life. That same day, Fox went to the Cornhill Insurance Company, where his mother had a policy taken out in August of that year. Fox had renewed it until October 20th, but asked for an extension until midnight on October 23rd. This policy had previously been extended six times. Fox also travelled to Wesleyan and General where he renewed a long-standing insurance policy his mother had first taken out in 1913. Those policies were worth a total of £3,000 in the event that Mrs Rosaline Fox died in a sudden and violent accident before midnight on October 23, 1929. The Day of the Fire Fox reportedly had difficulty affording the train fare back to Margate, asking a boarding housekeeper Gertrude Platt, whose house Fox had previously stayed in with his mother, if he could borrow the 16 shillings and 10 pence he needed. On the morning of October 23rd, the chambermaid brought tea for Mrs Fox in room 66. She noticed that her dentures were lying on the floor beside the bed, instead of the basin where she usually placed them overnight. Waitress Gwendolyn Bug recalled seeing Mrs Fox in the dining hall that evening. Quote, Her eyes seemed fixed, and she walked with a wobble or a shuffle. She always had to be led in and out of the dining room. Her condition was the same as usual, and Fox was very attentive to her. Mrs Fox went to her room after dinner and her son told staff members that her condition had improved and she was in good spirits. He said, Mother and I have had a sham fight, which shows she is well. Fox was seen in the lounge until 10.40pm that evening. He had gone to the hotel across the street to purchase a half bottle of port for his mother drinking half of it in her room while she read the evening paper and ate some grapes. Before retiring for the night, Sidney Fox asked the clerk how much he owed and was told it was £12. Fox said they would be checking out the following day and he would settle up then. The staff at the hotel all described Sidney Fox as a devoted and considerate son. But just before midnight, Mrs Fox was found dead in room 66, and when Sidney Fox's past indiscretions were uncovered, the circumstances of her death were viewed in a new light. With knowledge of the mother and son's tendency to deceive hotel staff and misrepresent themselves as members of high society, as well as Fox's relationships with well-respected men in power, the police arrested him on November 4th in Norwich. In the days that followed his mother's death, 
Sidney Fox had retained the services of a solicitor, Mr Wilson. Checking out of the Hotel Metropole before arriving at a hotel in Norwich. From that hotel, Fox had sent a letter to the bookkeeper at the Metropole that read, I am not feeling too well. I do wish tomorrow had passed. It does not seem possible that last week the poor dear soul was well. How I shall miss her. We had been such pals. There is one thing I do thank God for and that is the kind friends who did so much to help me. Sidney Fox was detained at Norwich Police Station and charged with obtaining credit under false pretenses. The cheque he had cashed at the chemist had been returned because his mother did not have an account at that bank, and he had not come up with the funds for the week-long stay at the hotel. When it emerged that Fox had tried to claim the insurance money and that he was the sole benefactor of his mother's will, Scotland Yard was asked to assist in the investigation. Chief Inspector Hambrook was assigned to the case. Hambrook was one of the founding members of the Flying Squad, a branch of the constabulary that dealt with serious and organised crime. Hambrook's first job was to recover a large amount of evidence from a corporate refuse dump, as the contents of the hotel rooms had been cleared out and refurbished. Surprisingly helped by an army of volunteers, they recovered not only Rosaline Fox's clothing, but also the remainder of the scorched contents of the room. Also, Hambrook knew Sidney Fox. He had arrested him before labelled Fox's relationship with men as perversions. Investigators discovered that Sidney Fox had lied to the hotel manager at the Metropole about a number of things. There was no house in Lindhurst, his mother did not have a bank account, and he was not Mrs Fox's only surviving child. Her eldest son, William, had not seen his mother since January 1928 and only learned of her death through newspaper reports. Sidney Fox had been incensed when he was released from prison in 1929 and learned that his brother had not visited their mother at all. William had only been left one farthing in Mrs Fox's will along with a note in which she wrote that she hoped he would never seek to see his mother again. Sidney Fox had been given an advance of £25 and then £14 from his solicitor in anticipation of the insurance payout, but the £14 were seized upon his arrest for fraud. Fox pleaded not guilty to the charge and was granted bail. The Home Office authorised an order for the exhumation of Rosaline Fox's remains on November 9th, over two weeks after her death. The examination was to be carried out by the renowned pathologist Sir Bernard Spilsbury, under the observation of Chief Inspector Hambrook. Under police supervision, workmen from Deerham erected a tarpaulin over the grave in Great Fransham. 
The schoolhouse was to be turned into a makeshift examination room so the post-mortem could take place nearby. The old tables and chairs on which Mrs Fox may have once sat while she attended the school were pushed to one side to make space for trestles that would support the oak coffin as it was opened. The blinds were shut tightly to prevent curious reporters or spectators from watching the exam, conducted under a brightly burning oil lamp with just Spilsbury and Hambrook in attendance. The groundskeeper Arthur Cross identified Rosaline Fox by the distinctive mark on the right side of her nose. He said, I could not possibly make a mistake. Rosaline bore that scar when she was a little girl. Everybody in the village at the time knew of the scar, which was a big one, and can be seen plainly. After three hours, Spilsbury and Hambrook returned to London and Rosaline was reinterred. Spilsbury had taken organs to be sent to the Home Office analyst Dr Roche for examination, but it took over a month for him to send them, and the post-mortem report was not compiled until December 1929. Sir Bernard Spilsbury had found recent injuries to the deep tissue of the neck and tongue, and believed the fire did not cause Rosaline Fox's death. In the pathologist's opinion, death was due to asphyxiation caused by manual strangulation. The absence of bruises and marks could be evidence that she did not resist. There was also a lack of soot on the inner surface of the air passage and no carbon monoxide in the blood, which would be expected in someone who died from smoke inhalation. Sir Bernard Spilsbury believed Mrs Fox died very soon after the fire started, if not before. He said that if steady pressure of fingers were maintained in the same area for a period of two minutes after death, no indications of bruises would occur at all on the skin of the throat. If his conclusion was correct, it could not have been an accident or self-inflicted. Room 66 at the Hotel Metropole had remained sealed while the investigation was ongoing. An empty medicine bottle and a sparingly used small bottle of petrol were taken from the room for analysis. The grand jury returned an indictment for fraud, and Sidney Fox's trial was set to take place at Kent Criminal Assizes. While Sidney Fox was remanded in custody at Maidstone Prison to await his trial for fraud, he was brought before the Margate Magistrates' Court and charged with the murder of his mother. An enormous crowd had gathered outside on January 9, 1930, all eager to catch a glimpse of the man accused of the first case of matricide in recent memory. Sidney Fox was described as a young man of medium height with an exceptionally smart appearance. His mugshot pictured a slight smile. His dark hair curly on top was cut short on the sides. For his court appearance, he wore a well-fitted grey overcoat 
a blue striped suit and a black tie. In response to the murder charge, Sidney Fox said, It is absolutely untrue. I deny every word of it. I have nothing further to say until I have consulted my solicitor. Six weeks of hearings followed. The evidence was laid out to determine if there was enough to commit Fox to trial. The Crown Prosecutor told the magistrates that Fox had been in dire need of money and he had constantly lied about his circumstances before and after his mother's death. Mr Cohen alleged that Fox had not been the devoted son he was described as but instead had planned his mother's death in order to obtain an insurance payout. Cohen said, If you draw from the facts, the only inference which I submit can be drawn, you will be driven to the conclusion that this show of affection was either assumed to deceive or due to remorse. Sidney Fox cried out in response, How dare you say such a thing? The Crown did not have to prove a motive behind the alleged murder, but asked the magistrates to consider how much £3,000 would mean to a man with no money and expensive taste. Mr Cohen told the court that Fox and his mother were staying at a hotel that cost considerably more per night than their joint weekly income and that Mrs Fox had been found dead less than 20 minutes before the insurance policy expired that had been purchased the previous day. Based on the account given by Mr Cohen and the report from Sir Bernard Spilsbury concluding that Mrs Fox had been strangled, her son Sidney Fox was committed to trial for his mother's murder. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. On March 12, 1930, the trial of Sussex Assizes in Lewis opened before Mr. Justice Rowlett. The judge told the jury there would be 72 witnesses in the case and the material facts were scattered up and down their evidence. Mr Justice Rowlett advised the jury to send telegrams home as jurors would be required to remain in a secure location until the conclusion of the legal proceedings. Judge Rowlett said, You will be prisoners for some days and cut off from the world. During the trial, Sidney Fox was the only prisoner housed in Lewis Jail, which was only used during assize court trials. The jury were kept isolated in a hotel, where they were allowed to go on walks accompanied by police officers, or listen to a gramophone as they played cards each evening. The trial began with an opening statement by the Attorney General Sir William Jowett. The unprecedented circumstances of the case had attracted a great deal of attention and it was believed that the Attorney General headed the prosecution himself to prevent sensitive information about some high-ranking men from being revealed. Sir William Jowett spoke about Sidney Fox's record of obtaining credit by fraudulent means and said that while that did not make Fox a murderer, it did give the jury a clue as to a possible motive. Quote, Whether you do or do not take a favourable or unfavourable view as to his conduct in certain matters which are incidental to this case, 
is neither here nor there. But I cannot leave out these matters for this reason. It is essential in judging this case you should bear this fact clearly in mind, that it is manifest from what I am going to say that Sidney Harry Fox and his mother were in desperate financial straits. They were spending every day a good deal more than the joint weekly pensions of 18 shillings. The Attorney General described Mrs Fox as being old for her years and spoke about the paralysis that caused her to walk with a shuffle. Sidney Fox was described as a plausible and well-spoken young man who came across as intelligent and well-educated. Sir William Jowett believed this allowed the pair to dupe hotel staff across the southeast. The prosecution would argue that Sidney Fox had been planning his mother's demise for some time, and he had apparently considered different ways to bring about her death. They disputed his story about Dr. Austin being drunk and over-prescribing medication to his mother was an alternative method Fox had considered. The Attorney General said, What possible point was there in this man telling these stories on the Sunday, unless it showed that he was, at that time, casting about in his mind to try to think of a method to achieve what he wanted to achieve? The Attorney General suggested that Fox was running out of time, and the £12 bill for their stay at the Hotel Metropole was looming. So William Jowett told the court, You get this man in the position of being in desperate financial straits, and you have two policies in that man's pocket, one for £2,000, one for £1,000, which will become payable to him if by any chance his mother dies and dies by external means during the currency of October 23rd, which is the following day. The Attorney General argued that Sidney Fox had attempted to lay the foundations for his cover-up by telling a witness he'd had a sham fight with his mother, which would also account for any bruises Fox might have sustained if his mother struggled when he tried to kill her. Addressing the jury... Sir William Jowett said that Fox was seen heading to his room at 10.40pm. He had in his pocket a bill for the hotel, the Attorney General said, and you will know he had not the means with which to pay that bill. He had two policies in the other pocket and went down, had some drinks and repeated that he would be leaving the next day. Just ask yourselves as men and women of the world what his thoughts were as he walked up the stairs at 20 to 11 on the 23rd. He was committed to going the next day. His pleasant stay at the Hotel Metropole had come to an end. If by any chance Mrs. Rosaline Fox died by violent external means in the course of the next hour and 20 minutes, he was entitled to receive £3,000. What happened in room 66? What happened, happened in silence. There was no sound. It was not until within 20 minutes of those two policies coming to an end that Mr Hopkins, who was sitting in the hall, saw Fox running downstairs, scantily clad in his undergarments, shouting, Where is the boots? I believe there is a fire. There is a fire. 
The prosecution referred to the testimony from Sir Bernard Spilsbury which formed the basis of their case. It was claimed that Fox had strangled his mother on her bed and used a pillow to stifle her screams before setting a fire to try and conceal his crime. A pillow had been found on the nightstand in the aftermath of the fire instead of being on the bed where it would be expected. The prosecution contended that this was evidence that it had been used during the murder. In contrast to the testimony provided at the inquest, Chief Officer Hammond from the fire brigade had formed the opinion that the fire could only have been started with petrol. Coincidentally, there was a bottle of petrol found in the room. The hotel staff had seen Sidney Fox use the small bottle of fluid to clean the only suit he owned while he was a guest at the hotel, but the prosecution alleged that it served an entirely different purpose. Evidence concerning Mrs Fox's will, which was altered in April 1929, was given. Everything had been left to Sidney Fox with the request that he only give small gifts to two of Rosalind Fox's friends. It also read, To my son William Edward Fox, I leave the sum of one farthing, and sincerely hope he will never want his mother. The first people to arrive at the scene testified about the measures they took to try and revive Mrs Fox and extinguish the fire. The police officers had attempted artificial respiration by pulling her tongue out and hitting her back. In the defence's favour there was evidence that most of the damage caused to the patch of carpet considered the point of origin for the fire had in fact been caused by people stamping on it to smother the burning fibres. Testimony from the insurance brokers revealed that Sidney Fox explicitly requested an accidental death or injury policy that would expire at midnight on October 23rd. Policies were usually set to expire at midday, but it was not completely unheard of to extend them for evening travel. Fox apparently asked the insurance company employees questions about what was considered an accident. He queried whether food poisoning or drowning in the bath would be covered, but was told that they would not as death could not be attributed to natural causes in those instances. A detailed reconstruction of room 66 had been set up in the back area of the court building because the judge did not have the jurisdiction to allow the jurors to travel to the hotel metropole. However, the jury were not permitted to access the area where the reconstruction had been placed, so with great difficulty, the gas stove, armchair, Wicker chair and carpet were brought into the small space in front of the judge's bench and assembled around a table that was one and a half feet wide that represented the floor. The fire chief performed a demonstration that the Telegraph newspaper referred to when they reported, 
Rarely has a murder trial in England produced such remarkable scenes as those which mark today's hearing. Chief Officer Hammond held a match to the horsehair that was used to stuff the armchair to show how difficult it was to burn, but within seconds it became too hot for him to hold, and he dropped it onto the fender which had been used in the reconstruction where it burned out. Chief Hammond relented that the fire might have been caused by Mrs Fox's clothes that had been left on the arm of the chair if the clothing came into contact with the gas stove. However, unfortunately for the defence, the most damning testimony came from Sir Bernard Spilsbury, the notorious pathologist and acclaimed forensic expert for the Crown. Armed with a lifelike model of the human mouth, throat and windpipe, Spilsbury told the court that he found no sign of external injuries on Mrs Fox. Still, he had discovered internal bruises on the back of the larynx, the left side of her tongue and on the thyroid gland. He pointed to the locations where he claimed to have observed the bruises during the post-mortem conducted on the day Mrs. Fox's body was exhumed. Spilsbury found no trace of carbon or soot in Mrs. Fox's air passages or blood, something he would expect to find in a case where a person had died from smoke inhalation. Sir Bernard Spilsbury commented that there was evidence of heart disease discovered during his examination, including fibrosis or plaque and a narrowing of the coronary artery but he said, Most of the pathological causes which I have described in the body are commonly found in elderly persons or are not in themselves serious. Fibrosis of the heart muscle associated with the disease of the artery of the heart may cause sudden death, but the disease of the artery found here was not sufficient in my opinion to explain the death. Fibrosis is seen in someone who has recently suffered a heart attack, but Spilsbury was adamant that Rosaline Fox's death was not caused by heart failure. Instead, he put forward the theory that Mrs Fox had been manually strangled by someone while she was wearing her dentures, and that constant upward pressure on her larynx had caused her to asphyxiate and bite her tongue, explaining the bruises found. When he was cross-examined, Spilsbury admitted that he had not preserved the bruises, and no one apart from himself and the chief inspector had seen them. The bruises were not visible on the sections he had removed the following day, despite being referred to as the size of a half-crown. Spilsbury rejected the possibility that the darkened areas he saw were caused by putrefaction as the body decomposed. Another fact Spilsbury struggled to explain was how, if Fox had strangled his mother, the brittle bones in her neck did not break. The small bones in the neck that are often found with fractures in strangulation cases, the hyoid and cricoid bone, were fully intact during the autopsy. The bones are so easily broken that the pathologist accidentally snapped the hyoid bone twice while examining it but he still contended that Sidney Fox had managed to strangle his mother without leaving any external signs of violence 
or hallmark traits seen in similar cases. When Fox's counsel, James Dean Castles, was finishing his cross-examination of Sir Bernard Spilsbury, he asked him, In your experience of strangulation cases, have you ever known a case with fewer signs than this? Spilsbury answered that he had not. The next medical expert to testify was Dr Weir, a pathologist from the National Hospital for Diseases of the Heart. Dr Weir had reviewed Spilsbury's report, and apart from the internal bruises noted, Dr Weir said that Mrs Fox could have died from heart failure while she was being strangled, but admitted it was his initial assumption that she had seen the fire, tried to get out of bed in a state of fright, and had a heart attack. Once the prosecution had concluded their presentation, Sidney Fox's counsel addressed the jury. Describing it as a profoundly difficult case, James Dale Castle said, Fox was brought up by his mother, a widow. He has known no other companion than the mother for whose death it is alleged he is responsible. I'm not going to present this young man to you as a man who tells the truth. I present him as a liar. I present him to you as one who over and over again has stayed with his mother in hotels and has left without paying. I present him to you as a man who, from the experience that he had, was able to go into hotels and, by his plausibility and by his duplicity, to obtain for his mother and himself comfort and attention which neither of them could afford to which neither of them was entitled, and which in its surroundings was altogether beyond their station. He was bound to be a liar. He could not have conducted himself there without representing himself to be something far bigger than he really was. And you may well reflect that old woman must have had many an awkward and difficult moment in the course of her life, which she was spending with her son at that particular time. He lied about his position financially, future and past, but you are a long way from finding murder proved because you find that a man has gone from hotel to hotel without being able to afford it, or because being an undischarged bankrupt for £267 he is therefore to be regarded as an individual likely to have a motive of murder. Castle said that the insurance policies had been put forward as Fox's motive, but reminded the jurors that the motive had existed since May 1929. If Fox wanted to kill his mother, he could have done it at any hour during the 167 out of 176 days she was insured before her death. Castle said that Fox had not taken the insurance out to cover his mother's death, Arguing, in my submission too much has been made of the insurance policies. The reason for taking out these policies was that, in the event of his mother meeting with an accident, they would have been provided a weekly maintenance which would have given her comfort and medical attendance, very different from that she had had for 15 months in a poor law institution. They provided it at a cost which was infinitely small. 
Newcastle's asked the jury if they thought it strange how everything seemed to go in Fox's favour on the night he supposedly murdered his mother. No one who saw the body that night saw any signs of violence. The fire had seemed to deceive the police and firemen too, as they did not report it as suspicious. At 10.38am on March 19th, 1930, Sidney Fox entered the witness box in his overcoat and swore the oath in a quiet but firm voice. He was pale but composed as he described his life. Fox said that he had just turned 31 years old, and after the deaths of his older brothers and his own military service, his mother began to get sick in 1926. They lived together and Fox said he had worked odd jobs to support his mother, some not as honest as others. Fox admitted to lying numerous times to impress people and to stay at hotels where he and his mother could be comfortable. He had not asked for adjoining rooms or a room with a fireplace when they checked into the Hotel Metropole and denied purchasing insurance for any other reason than to appease his mother's request. He relayed the sequence of events that preceded the fire on October 23rd once more. He brought his mother to her room, lit the gas fire, gave her grapes and the evening paper, and placed a wicker chair close by for her to use as a table. She sat reading while he went to get her some port before he helped her undress. He left her room just after 10pm. Tears welled in his eyes, and his voice trembled when he told the court, I kissed mother goodnight, and asked if I should come into the room again to turn out the light. She said no. Under cross-examination, Sidney Fox said that he kept up the pretense of having money, including £24 in his mother's handbag, because he did not want anyone to know that they had been staying there without the means to pay. When asked how they had supported themselves, Fox mentioned a Mrs. Morse. He seemed embarrassed when asked to tell the jury who Mrs. Morse was, and said she was a very well-to-do Australian lady living with them in South Sea. Mrs. Morse was a married woman who had moved to the UK with her son so they could be educated there. In an ongoing divorce proceeding, Sidney Fox was cited as a correspondent. Mrs. Morse had made Fox the benefactor in her own will before she left the country in late 1929. It was intimated that Fox had intended to go to Australia after his mother's death. One question that puzzled guests and the prosecution was why the door to Fox's mother's room was closed after Sidney Fox ran downstairs to raise the alarm. Fox could not remember shutting the door, but said in the panic he was in he might have, possibly to stop the smoke from spreading. In a barrage of questions, the Attorney General asked Fox, did you go towards your mother's bed before there was any fire and stretch out your hand against your own mother? 
Did you then start a fire? Did you move the little cane chair back to the window? Did you come out of your own room and shut the door and then go down and give the alarm? Did you destroy your mother on the night of the 23rd of October in order that you might reap £3,000 from those policies? Fox answered, Most certainly not. It is a horrible suggestion. Medical experts for the defence began their testimony next. Professor Smith from Edinburgh University said he had never seen a strangulation case involving an older person where the hyoid bone had not been broken. Smith explained he could not see anything on the larynx or thyroid that he would call a bruise. In reference to the alleged bruise on Mrs Fox's tongue, he said that it was possible that she had bitten it while eating or that it had been bruised when the police had pulled her tongue out when they were trying to revive her. Professor Smith did not believe she had been strangled and said the position of her body suggested she had died while trying to get out of bed. The professor postulated that she had woken up and found the room full of smoke and that fright caused heart failure. Professor Smith said that Mrs Fox's heart was in such an advanced state of degeneration and her kidneys were so roast that any additional strain or exertion would tend to precipitate death. Another expert, pathologist Dr Bronte, agreed with Professor Smith that the cause of death had been heart failure as a result of heart disease and shock. He said that no saliva had been found on the pillow to corroborate the suggestion that it had been used to stifle any screams while Mrs Fox was being throttled and said that the bruises Sir Bernard Spilsbury claimed to see were likely putrefaction stains. In his closing address on March 20th, Fox's counsel James Castle said... It is going to be a very sorry day for the administration of criminal justice in this land if we are to be thrust into such a position that because Sir Bernard expresses an opinion on it is of such weight that it must be accepted. It has been said that this is a murder for money. Would you not think that Fox would carry out a murder of that kind when Mrs Fox was insured for the highest amount? There were times when she was insured for £4,000. Castles asked the jury to consider if it had been proved that Mrs Fox had been murdered. How could Fox strangle her without leaving any external marks? He said that if Fox had killed his mother and lit the fire, why had he alerted people before it concealed the crime? And why would he kill his mother knowing that it would uncover his fraudulent deceptions? Sir Henry Curtis Bennett delivered the closing argument for the Crown as the Attorney General had been summoned to London. Bennett told the jury of ten men and two women that the case had the strongest possible motive, a double motive, in that Fox would inherit money from the insurance policies 
and would be free to go to Australia to a wealthy woman who was willing to leave him a fortune. On the eighth day of the trial, Mr Justice Rowlett summed up the case and said, No question arises of manslaughter or anything of that kind. It is murder or nothing. The crime Fox is said to have committed is a very horrible one. And if he is guilty of it, he is guilty of a very cruel and treacherous murder. It is a case of circumstantial evidence. And it has been said this circumstantial evidence may be very complete and convincing. Circumstances may point to one conclusion, that if one circumstance is not consistent with guilt, it breaks the whole thing down. What you want is an array of circumstances which point only to one conclusion, and to all reasonable minds to that conclusion only. Consider everything together. If Fox committed the murder in the way alleged, he took a very big risk. Insofar as the place it was perpetrated was concerned, these people were living this extraordinary life in this hotel. They were living quite dishonestly, but carrying it through by the magnificent way of talking. The judge made a point of saying that the unbroken hyoid bone was a very strong point in favour of the accused and it was a case of slight symptoms and obscure causes that rested on what Spilsbury saw just once, despite the larynx being preserved in formulation. Concluding his final remarks, the judge told the jury, You have been asked to consider how you will feel in ten years' time. If that means it is a much more comfortable thing not to do your duty, seeking comfort in that way, it is only a form of self-indulgence. If you want to feel real comfort, the way is to face your duty and do it. There is an end of it. Consider your verdict. After just an hour and 30 minutes, the jury returned with a unanimous decision. Fox stood in silence as the judge donned the black silk square on top of his grey wig, with one corner facing Fox. The black cap was worn as a judge passed the sentence of death. Fox's eyes never moved from the judge, and he protested, I never murdered my mother. Sidney Harry Fox had been found guilty. Fox seemed as though he would collapse as the judge informed him of his fate, and when he was led down the stairs by the court officers, he had to be supported on both sides. As with any convicted murderer faced with the death penalty, Fox was expected to appeal his conviction. His execution date had been set for April 8th at Maidstone Prison by the High Sheriff of Kent, but his counsel found that there were no grounds to appeal, which would be justified by the court. The defence had asked the Home Secretary for a review of the pathological evidence by an independent medical committee, 
based on conflicting testimony, but their request was denied. Many convicted murderers appealed on the grounds of a mental condition, as English law dictated that no person convicted of murder could be hanged if they became insane after sentencing, because they, quote, could not by reason of a disordered mind make their peace with God. But Sidney Fox refused to appeal on the grounds of insanity. One newspaper report read, During the past ten years, practically every man convicted of murder has applied to criminal court either by way of actual appeal or of an application for leave to appeal. It is difficult to recall any recent convicted murderer who has not almost automatically sought to upset his conviction. Sidney Fox was one of very few, if not the first, to not appeal an execution since 1908. So where are we now? The sentence was carried out at 8.15am on April 8th, 1930. Wearing the same suit he had worn throughout the trial, Sidney Fox walked to the execution chamber, unaware that a crowd of over 200 men, women and children had gathered outside the gates of Maidstone Prison to wait for the bell to toll. Soon after he was pronounced dead, Fox was cited in the reason for a divorce. Evidence was presented that Fox and Mrs. Morse had stayed together in Southsea and a London hotel, which was enough grounds for the judge to grant the dissolution of her marriage. Although newspaper articles were published about a wealthy woman who claimed that Fox had also tried to kill her years earlier, a subsequent investigation revealed that Mrs. Morse was more likely to have been party to a dishonest enterprise than a victim. There are questions on whether homophobia played a role in Sidney Fox's prosecution. Evidence of prejudice has come to light since the decades that sealed the records have elapsed. Many people doubt the safety of Sidney Fox's conviction, including Professor Sidney Smith. In his book, Mostly Murder, published almost 30 years after the trial, he wrote about the judge's summation and the prosecution's claim that Rosaline Fox had been strangled, which rested on the sole testimony of what one skilled man observed, and observed at one moment only. Smith wrote, Perhaps the judge did not quite appreciate the dangerously high esteem in which that one skilled man was held. Perhaps Spilsbury did not fully realise that fame brings responsibility as well as honour. I do not think the jury would have returned the verdict they did if his evidence had been given by anyone else but Spilsbury. Sidney Harry Fox was buried on the grounds of Maidstone Prison as the last prisoner to have ever been executed there.
Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.